Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 63, where we'll be taking a trip to the Great White North with Mike Clark to talk all about the old Toronto Jack Tunney office and a whole lot of other things. We'll get to that in a second. Want to get to a few things first before we do. One thing I want to mention, one thing I want to acknowledge and recognize is the passing of Bob Miller, who, of course, a lot of people knew as Butch Miller or Bushwhacker Butch, one half of the Kiwi Sheep Herders as well, one half of the Bushwhackers, who passed away over WrestleMania weekend. He had come out from New Zealand to take part in the festivities in Los Angeles, autograph signings, reuniting with his partner, Luke. And unfortunately, while he was out there, he had a medical emergency. He did not make it, passed away at the age of 78. I want to recognize his accomplishments, his contributions. You know, a lot of people will say one thing or the other, either they'll remember him mainly as one half of the Bushwhackers or uh, less likely, but they'll remember him strictly for what he did with the Kiwi sheep herders. And then you'll get people that say, well, the Bushwhackers were just for kids, you know? And I'm here to say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's an amazing accomplishment, and it deserves to be recognized. They were one of the most overacts that the WWF had. They were there for almost a decade. They were loved by children, families. I know they pleased the hell out of my grandfather, may he rest in peace, who got a giant smile on his face every time they were on the TV. And they made a whole lot of money, as they would often say themselves in interviews. They got to stop beating up their bodies, and they got to earn some real money during middle age, really at a time when their career may have otherwise been winding down. And I think that's an amazing accomplishment. I love the Kiwi Sheep Herders. I love watching their ultraviolet matches, for sure, from the early part of their career. But I also love, truly, the Bushwhackers and the fun that they brought to pro wrestling in the late 80s and early 90s. So here's to the memory of Bob Miller, Bushwhacker Butch. Condolences go out to his family and friends, and may he rest in peace. Also wanted to mention a few things that I have been working on. The newest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, it's the June issue with the Impact Knockouts on the cover. You guys are going to love this cover because It is a duplication, a copy, a kind of a tribute, I guess, to the famous UWF Championship Cup cover that PWI did in the 80s that had guys like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Ted DiBiase, the one-man gang, et cetera, and so forth on the cover fighting over a trophy. You know the one I'm talking about. Anyway, it's available now in digital form, not available yet in print form. That's April 18th. But it can be pre, it can be ordered in digital form at pwi-online.com. 
And it has a couple of pieces that I did, including an in-depth interview with Nick Aldis that I think you guys will enjoy, as well as a column that I wrote on the career and legacy of Johnny Valentine. Has some great pictures in there as well. So I encourage you to check it out if you can. Last thing I want to do before we get to the interview is just give you a little update on Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon. Hard at work on the book. It's been a little bit slow the past week or so because I have a lot of other deadlines going on with a lot of other work. But I am continuing to delve into the history and the career and the life of Gino Morella, Gorilla Monsoon. And I've had a few interesting and enlightening interviews recently with people that knew him well, that worked with him, including our very own Jim Cornette, who gave me some time to talk about being in the WWF with him in the late 1990s, the mid-1990s, the, the angle with Vader, of course. I was also able to talk to Jerry Briscoe, and I was able to talk to Gino Brito, whose career in the WWF or Capital Wrestling really goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to the early 60s. He's one of the last people still left from that very earliest era of Capital Wrestling when it first became the Worldwide Wrestling Federation and even before. And so he knew Gorilla from the very earliest days. In fact, he was in the promotion but when Gorilla first got there. So he had some amazing recollections to share. It's all going to go in the book. Just wanted to keep you guys abreast of what's happening. But right now, I want to take you to the interview that I did. Mike has a lot of interesting stories to tell about working in the Tunney Toronto office at the time of the WWF expansion and takeover, going from a fan to becoming part of the business. He also talks a lot about his own work in wrestling promotions. And believe it or not, in this hour, we even get to talk about the current product of wrestling and some of our gripes and insights on what WWE and particularly AEW are currently doing. I know that's not what I usually do on this show, and I don't want to infringe. I don't want any gimmick infringement on the Jim Cornette experience or the drive through So I hope you'll forgive me for spending a little bit of time on modern wrestling this week. I still think you're going to enjoy what we have to say. And I'm going to take you to that interview with Mike Clark right now. Okay, so right now it's my pleasure to bring on board Shut Up and Wrestle this week. Somebody that I had the pleasure to first meet as I have a bunch of good people, thanks to the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion, which I've now gone to the last two years. He's somebody who's got a very interesting story. He worked for the WWF Canada office, the the, the area run by Jack Tunney, for a number of years in the late 80s, early 90s, as a very young person, got a, an introduction into the business, worked as a referee as well for the WWF. Um, these days, he's still involved with the business as a promoter. And his name is Mike Clark. Mike, thank you for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. And uh, like I said, I mean, when we first were talking at CAC, some of the some of the names that came up and the stories you were telling, because as you know, like I, you know, I worked for WWE in a later era, uh, were just so fascinating to me. Like the whole the whole Tunny connection. So I know we talked about this a little bit before air, but. How did you come to work for Jack Tunney? Well, I guess like a lot of people that get involved in wrestling, I was a mega wrestling fan. And um, 
my dad, my parents got divorced when I was very young, but my dad was very um, involved in my life back then. And he started taking me, the WWF used to come up to Toronto roughly every two to three weeks in the early to mid eighties. And we used to go to the, a lot of the events and um, my dad was a union organizer up here in Canada. And uh, he used to have business meetings at the airport, Howard Johnson's hotel. And one day he came by the house and he said, Hey, I met iron Mike sharp and Superfly Jimmy Snuka at the hotel. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, Oh, they all stay there. And where I'm located, I'm in an area called Etobicoke. I've always lived in this area and it's like driving. It's like seven minutes door to door to the airport. So it was an airport hotel and myself and a couple of my friends got in a, on our bikes, rode our bikes down to the Howard Johnson's the day before the next wrestling event. Well, they told us at the Howard Johnson, all the wrestlers will be here the next day. So we got back on our bikes. I believe it was Labor Day weekend of 85, right before school. I remember that. And we went down and saw Randy Savage and Elizabeth, Lanny Bavo, King Kong, Bundy, Jimmy Hart, Terry Funk. I was just in my glory. (laughs) So then, you know, I thought, this is great. So then we all had, we brought cameras with us and got pictures. And I still have the pictures. I have them actually in my phone, a lot of them. And um, I just kept going. And um, they used to do television tapings up here every three weeks in a town called Brantford, Ontario, which is about, I don't know, let's say a little over an hour uh, west of uh, Toronto. So you would get them coming to Toronto. A lot of times uh, wrestling at Maple Leaf Gardens was always on a Sunday. And then they would do the TV tapings on a Monday. So they used to coincide where the wrestlers would come in Sunday work Maple Leaf Gardens and maybe another town, a double shot, and then come back to the hotel and then go to Brantford. So I'd get them for two days. I would go before the matches, then, you know, get on a bus because eventually I just took the bus to the hotel, meet everyone, get on a bus, go down to Maple Leaf Gardens and come back the next day, go home, come back. And it was just, it was just fantastic. You would, you would meet everybody being a 15-year-old kid, and we kept it quiet. Like, we said, nobody's to know. You can't tell anybody. This is going to wreck it. And slowly but surely, you know, being in high school, my friends and that, I guess, they had girlfriends and doing whatever they do. And slowly it all dropped off. The group of us that went where it just became myself going a lot of the times. And um, I would go and... Uh, you know, get to know everybody, but it was the summer of uh, 86. I uh, went on a family vacation to Glasgow, Scotland for five weeks. And I came back and the first thing I did when I got home, I called Jack Tunney's office to find out when the next live wrestling was. And a person on the other end of the phone told me, and I hung up the phone and I said, there used to be a guy, a ring announcer, Norm Kimber, that worked in the office. And I I hung up and I said, that's somebody else. I go, who the heck is that? That's not Norm Kimber. I go, that sounds like that guy, Elio, who was like, uh, worked for Tony. And I called right back. I said, is this Elio? He goes, yeah, who's this? I said, it's Mike. Oh, where are you being? And Elio and I just got uh, a real uh, start of a friendship back then. And uh, him and I, to this day, are uh, best friends. And he's the one who kind of guided me and got me in the business at the age of 15. So, Wow. That's crazy. And also, people don't realize, I want to make it clear, because I've talked to a few people on here who were you know, uh, fans in Toronto or who grew up around Toronto. And 
Toronto and Maple Leaf Wrestling and the Maple Leaf Gardens, that was crucial to Vince McMahon's expansion. It was like a major stop because, if you know, for younger fans, they may not realize how important it was. It was one of the first places where the WWF went when they were expanding and the whole partnership with the Tunnies and, and Jack Tunney getting that like figurehead WWF president position like Toronto was extremely important to Vince McMahon and the WWF operation back then. Absolutely. Like I've heard a lot of stories. I'm not going to be the one to say it because I don't know verbatim, but I know he was with um, the Crockett's in NWA. And yeah, right. He just decided one night I'm going to jump on board this juggernaut of the World Wrestling Federation. And uh, he never looked back. Toronto, I don't think people even hear because, like, I'm going to be 52 on Friday. And, you know, I guess you could say I've kind of been involved in the business since I started there in 86. But it's like uh, I don't think people understand the relevancy of, of of Toronto and the province of Ontario. Like they used to come up here and do week long loops. They would do like Toronto Monday, Brantford Tuesday, a couple times a year. Kingston, you know, Cornwall, Ottawa, come back, do Kitchener, London. It was a whole lot. This was a great big area. The wrestlers were here all the time like they were in canada no more than three weeks apart because we had the tv and when you did the tv the interesting thing uh growing up being a fan or working in tunny's office you would see everybody first because you have to remember there was no internet there was no google machine there was nothing so i'd be at the hotel whether i was working for jack or as a fan like i remember i was in the hotel one day as a kid and the only um, education you had on wrestlers outside was the magazines. And every I'll never forget, I, I was at the hotel and Hercules Hernandez came in. And he walked in and um, checked in at the hotel. I said, hey, you're Hercules Hernandez. And he had to, I'll never forget the shocked look on his face. Like, how does this kid know who I am? <laughs> right? And he kind of said, I said, I've seen you in magazines. Wow, you must be here now. You know, it, it was a kind of thing like everybody, everybody from the World Wrestling Federation back then started up here because it was the TV taping. So they would bring him into Brantford, like Honky Tonk Man. I remember sitting, Honky Tonk Man used to be on TV up here on um, All-Star Wrestling from Vancouver and the, and the Calgary promotion, Stampede. And I remember being at Howard Johnson. He was sitting there in his brown jumpsuit in the lobby. I said, <laughs> well, there's Honky Tonk. Like you kind of had to jump on everything everybody back then right. you knew and i remember slick the manager i was there and i say he came in all on his own it was a tv taping day great big tall guy in a suit he looked just like on television and i'd see all the wrestlers coming up say hey how you doing buddy hey how you doing buddy so i got up the nerve i said excuse me can you tell me who you are oh i'm a nobody I said, but all the wrestlers know you. Yeah, they just like me. He totally kayfabe me. I had no clue who he was. You know? <laughs> like another, another, I've got a bit of ADD, so I'm just going to ramble on. No, another please story do. Like that. I was in the lobby one day, walking to the bathroom. Like, I think it was a Monday. And I'm behind this great big black guy. And I said, man, this guy would make one hell of a wrestler, right? And it was Kamala. I had no idea it was Kamala, right? 
And it's just like, I figured it out later on that day. I go, that was Kamala. Right. You know, I had no right. idea it was Especially him, you know? out of makeup, you may not recognize him yeah, either. Yeah, he was right? just dressed, you know, like right. in a track pants or something. Right. But it was really, really like, you're bringing back a ton of memories here in my brain I haven't thought about. It was really, really something being a kid and you'd see Andre the Giant, you know, Hulk Hogan. Like, I remember a friend of mine, myself and my friend Rob, and we went to the hotel on a Monday. They didn't have TV, but they were leaving. And we wanted to meet Hulk Hogan. And we heard he was staying at the Howard Johnson's. He got in late. And he came down to lobby with this blonde lady. And she said, do you want pictures with Hulk? I said, oh, absolutely. So he did a double uh, headlock picture. Me and Rob on one side and took one of me and one of Rob like that. I said, are you his girlfriend? I was his wife, Linda. No, I'm his wife. Right. <laughs> oh, so no. just interesting, interesting <laughs> things like that. And then getting, getting to be involved on a, on a full-time level was really something you go from being a fan to, um, you know, working there. It's a, a whole new ball game. And what did you do most of the time? What were, what were your roles in the office? Well, what happened when I came back from Scotland, I got a job at Maple Leaf Gardens selling ice creams and pop and all that because you could go to all the events. Sure. So I would go to the, mat, the the hotel before, and I was very good friends, I told you, with Elio. And there was uh, Jimmy Corderas, who ended up being a referee. He wasn't a referee yet at that time. And me, him, and uh, Elio were in the room. Tony used to get a suite at the Howard Johnson's with beer and sandwiches to keep the guys out of trouble after the matches. And we were in there, and they were going to London, Ontario the next day for a house show. And Jim's friend was supposed to help Elio with the merchandise. Well, he couldn't do it. And Elio said, who am I going to get? I said, well, get me. He goes, well, you got school. I said, no, never mind school. I can miss a day of school. And that's basically how it started. And that was like my weekend job when they were in town. Elio would take me, and I would sell the souvenirs with them, programs. Right. It was in its infancy. We had about eight shirts. There was like a Hulk Hogan shirt, British Bulldog shirt, you know, Andre Macho Man shirt, the famous pink one with the glasses. You know, and it was it wasn't like it is today, but that's how it started. And that in in the summer of eighty uh, seven, that was like my summer job working for the WWF. Now, did you ever? I, I know you were a little young at the time, but did you ever go to any of the Maple Leaf Garden shows before the WWF had come in, like when they were still working yeah. with Crockett talent and yeah. having Rick Flair very- come in and stuff like that? The very first show I ever went to was my birthday in, uh, I believe it was 82. And they did the Cadillac tournament with Jimmy mm. Valiant. And I was yeah. just talking about this a couple weeks ago with Elio. I remembered it. John Studd was on it. Uh, Jesse Ventura. Um, Austin Idol. That was the first time I'd ever seen Austin Idol. He was in it. Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant was the hottest thing going. Like when I was in grade school, it was all about the boogie woogie man. And my dad, that's how it started. He hated wrestling. And uh, he took me for my birthday every year. So I went to that one. And then we went one time and it was um, Roddy Piper versus somebody. And they said, they put on the box office, Roddy Piper won't be here. I think it was against Tonga kid, but he ended up showing up and then it would become a little more, you know, he would take us to me, my sister, to matinee shows, you know, it was really inexpensive back then too, to go to matches. You know, I remember like when I started for Tony, I think a ringside seat was like 12 bucks. 
Yeah, and some of those earlier shows, like even the pre-WWF ones, those cards were unbelievably stacked because they would have not, I mean, as you probably remember, and they would have everywhere. It wouldn't just be Crockett and WA. They would have some AWA people like, like, like the AWA champ would show up and they would sometimes have WWF people. Like, isn't that where they had Bob Backlund versus Nick Bockwinkle or Rick Martell or somebody? I I think they've done that. And I also think they did Backlund flair. I'm not sure, but there was also a couple events at CNE. Uh, There's a famous one, the big event they did. I think that was in 86. And I didn't go to that. I was a fan, but I didn't go. I went a few years earlier. They did a show with Crockett at the CNE and they did it. Like they set the ring up on like home plate or something. And they didn't have any floors. It would just be the bleachers. And I think it was Kabuki versus Jimmy Valiant. Harley Race was on it. Flair was on it. And they do big crowds. Like, I don't know what they would have drawn, but they probably had 20,000. They were like super shows. They ran. I know I went to one of them, and it was Kabuki and and Jimmy Valiant. I remember that. That was way back when I was like 12 or 13 years old. So we're talking like 83, 84, something like that. But of course, that that big event show in '86 with Hogan and Orndorff, that was like on a whole other level. I mean, they wound up setting what was at that time the all-time North American attendance record for wrestling. I mean, but there's something that's a lot of people don't know. I don't even know if you know that was a bot show. CBI right. Promotions and Bill Ballard bought that show from the WWF to put it on in there, and they were expecting about. 25 to 30,000 people. And it, it was virtually the whole stadium. Like my friend Elliot would be great to tell you because he did the merchandise. There was nothing left there. They, they sold every possible souvenir and everything there was. Like they weren't expecting it. It was right in the heart of the Canadian National Exhibition. And I don't know how many. They had over 60,000, I think. Yeah. I didn't go to that event. I was at the hotel that day. And that was the first time I ever had a wrestler ask me to pay him for an autograph. And he wasn't serious, but that was Adrian Adonis. Can I get a picture? He goes, can you give me $2? (laughs) I found that hilarious. Also, I think sometimes the heels would do stuff like that, too. You know, they didn't want to make it seem like they were too nice and too friendly. You know what? I found this a fan. I think because it was only like me and a buddy there, they were all really good with us. Like I remember like uh, Randy Savage was married to Elizabeth and my dad happened to be at the hotel one day and uh, Lanny Papa was there. And uh, my dad stopped talking to me. I was talking with Lanny as a kid, and my dad has a very thick Glaswegian Scottish accent. And Lanny was mesmerized by his accent. And Randy and Liz came by. Hey, Randy, check out his accent. It sounds good. And my dad turned and said, you two are married, right? (laughs) (laughs) And you could see Randy kind of goes, yeah, yeah, we're married. But no, you know what? I always found, even working in the business, the heels were the great guys and the baby faces were the pricks. The baby faces were the ones with all the ego. You know, even in the dressing room, it was like that you know i found you know i've actually heard that from other people too and i mean like when i worked at wwe honestly everybody was mostly very professional and friendly but i mean in those earlier years i've heard that from a lot of people that the heels actually wound up being much nicer to fans in the long run sometimes i think it's because 
they were so used to constantly being hated and having people want to yeah. kill them and boo them that when they were away from the ring, I think they just wanted a break from it, you know, to, to feel like a normal person. I think a lot of it changed when um, when Vince went to um, I know there was a big thing in New Jersey and it all yeah. had to do with tax. And, you know, the business was always kayfabe. But Vince, basically, I'll never forget, we were in Ottawa and it was the first time Shane Douglas had ever come up. A lot of people may not know, but um, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels were the rockers. And they were on a TV, I believe, in Florida. And it was a very bad accident. And um, a guy had his neck broken in the ring. And it was Jannetty that did it. And, and seemingly yes. he felt really, really bad. They took him off the road for about six weeks. And they had Shawn Michaels team with um, Shane Douglas for the summer and we were in ottawa i remember and they were all leaving and they said well we're gonna go it was demolition i think and wrestled them and sean was gonna jump in a car and he said come on and shane goes well you guys take the car together he goes well vince exposed it and i think after that point things um you know tended to change a lot with the guys they didn't have that pressure on them you know right and you had the whole thing with Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik, which was before that. And that was like such a bombshell. And it's kind of fun. I mean, for people that are too young, maybe to remember, uh, Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik were feuding on TV. You know, Duggan was the All-American babyface. And they got caught, I guess. Uh, I, I was little myself, but they were in a car together. They were stopped by the police for, I guess, speeding or something. And then they had drugs in the car. And it was a huge deal. Young fans may not understand this but they hated each other on tv and bigger than the drugs bigger than the than the moving violation or whatever was the fact that you had these two guys that were supposed to hate each other right yeah. and they were riding around together in a car and i i mean i remember even i'm sure this was happening everywhere i remember kids coming into school the next day basically going wow wrestling is bullshit because because of that and but well, that would never happen today. That, that that made the newspapers yeah. everywhere when that happened. You know, like wow, they were. I think they were caught in, I don't know, in New York State or New Jersey or somewhere, and they yeah. caught them together. You know, and it it wasn't so much in the in it. It was just that they were together. I think the Sheik ended up getting fired, and they suspended Duggan. I think they yeah. fired them both, but they brought Duggan back. Yeah, the Sheik was gone, so that would have been about eighty eight. I think that was when they. They let him go. I mean, honestly, at that point, they weren't doing a whole lot with him anyway. But I mean, yeah, one, one even in those days, even in the through the eighties, mid to late eighties, they were still protecting kayfabe. I mean, like yeah. even though, even though you know, like I've said many times on here, like a lot of the fans already knew, and people kind of knew the score to a certain degree. But the companies themselves, the wrestling companies, would never let on. I mean, they would absolutely never ever let on. It was one hundred percent in character all the time and that new jersey thing you're talking about with the state athletic commission i think it was like 89 that really like that, that was a game changer that really was like the finally publicly admitting this is entertainment kind of thing well you you look back i tried to get my u.s work visa and they would never give it to you because wwf wasn't classed it didn't have like a it wasn't a sport it wasn't entertainment you you'd go and it, back then you had to to work down there. You had to be able to do something nobody in the United States could do. It was virtually impossible 
to get a you know a, car, a green card to work down there back then in the eighties. So if you went down, you were working there, you know, you know, under the table type of thing. You know, you get paid to the Canadian office or whatever. Right. It was just, it was just, and then after that, like I remember going back to Jimmy Corderas, he started refereeing, I believe in 86. I was there his first day ref and he would do the TVs and stuff like that. And then when I left the WWF right before I left, I think he got like all his working papers and stuff. And he was full time for almost 20 years, I believe, you know, like yeah. working for maybe more. He started 91, 1, 11. I think he got released in uh, early 2009. So he was full time for about 20 years. He got, you know, finally was able to get, they were able to get him his working papers and all that stuff, but it was virtually impossible. Like going back, I started, um, my buddy who, uh, had me selling souvenirs. He opened a business in, um, 87. And I got a phone call. I, I stayed at my buddy's house. I'll never forget. It was a Sunday. And my mom came to pick me up. She said, Elio called and he would never call me. He's like 10 years older than me. And I said, uh, hmm. and I called him. He says, um, you going to school tomorrow? I, I actually, I got expelled from school the week before Oh no! from high school. I was a bit of a troublemaker, not fighting, just an instigator, you know? And, um, I said, no, not really. He said, okay, go. That's how my job started. He said, okay, go down to the office for 9 a.m. tomorrow. Pick up the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Sun and the Toronto Star. You're starting in the office. I said, what do you mean I'm starting in the office? Well, I got up and went down. And I remember I was there. I saw Jack. He said, good morning, Mike. Good morning. He goes, you know what to do, right? Pick up the phone, wrestling office. Don't answer this. There was like four lines. He said, don't answer that line. That It said Crockett on the phone. Not that Crockett would be calling, but it was like his private line. Only he answered it. Right. I said, okay. And I was there about last Monday morning. It might have been late Thursday afternoon. And he said, I had, he said, are you interested in what you're getting paid or anything? <laughs> I never said a word. I came in on the Monday. He gave me a key for the office and we, they had a pickup truck parked underground under these apartments across the street. He goes, here's a key for the pickup. You need to use it. And I never asked any questions. <laughs> he came up and said, are you interested in, you know, what you're going to be getting paid? And I said, no, not really. <laughs> That's how it all started. It was, it was pretty, I mean, as a 16 year old kid, it was like mesmerizing, you know, That's yeah. just, just how it started Sunday, go down tomorrow morning, you're working in the office. And that was it. And I started working for Tony. And then about a month, we were right across from Maple Leaf Gardens back then. You had a little office and people who would know, older people when you went to maple leaf gardens you looked up at the office there was an iconic poster of andre the giant the new york city poster in the window seven foot four that's how everyone knew it was the office well we moved a month later to an area called north york because the merchandise had taken off and the law back then here in canada was anything that could be made in canada had to be made here so the T-shirts, the hats, they were all made here. It, you know, Tunney would make them for selling them in Canada. You know, and we would just go to Buffalo and pick up the posters, the Hulk Hogan fingers, and the programs. That was basically what was shipped up from the U.S., but everything else was made up here. So we got like a double office, ground floor, you know, two industrial units. And one unit just was full to the top of merchandise. Wow. What was he like to, what was, 
Tunny like to work for and to be around? Because, you know, I've heard some stories and read over the years that he could be a pretty tough boss, that he could be kind of intimidating at times. No, you know what? With me, I don't think I ever really had any major issues with Jack. He was always nice to me. It was kind of like, you know, he'd say, anything happens, come to me, you know, I'll look out for you. And this, and it was, it was weird. I'm not trying to like big league myself or anything, but like even around the boys, like a lot of them knew me from the hotel as this little kid, you know, and everybody thought, I remember Coco Beware, who I just saw a couple of months ago. He used to think, he said, I know you're related to Tony. There's no way a kid, because I was a tiny little guy. Not that I'm big now, but I was like 5'2", 100 pounds when I worked there. This little scrawny kid. He says, you got to be Jack's nephew or something. Like, everybody thought there was some kind of relation there, you know? With Jack, no, you know what? Jack was always really, really good. There was one thing, he wasn't cheap. That's one thing I'll give him. You hear these stories of guys, and man, I could get into some stories about these wrestlers, like just ruthlessly cheap. Jack was just no problem. Give him the receipt, he'd give you the money. You know, you're on the road, he'd pay all your meals, all your hotels. And that was one advantage of working in the office or doing the ring crew for Jack or whatever you did. You know, everything was paid for. Like you'd go out on a four day loop, let's say, you know, we would go together, say me and Jimmy, and, um, you know, we do the ring, Jim would referee, I would, you know, sell the merchandise, we'd get a hotel, it was all paid by the office, you know, like I remember we did a tour out in Newfoundland in August of 88, and I went out there with my buddy Elio's ex-girlfriend at the time, he couldn't come until the, uh, two days later, and we flew out, and they had this other ring crew guys drive down to Newfoundland, so you had to go probably 17 or 18 hours and get on a ferry for six or seven hours to get to the island. Well, we just flew down and um, I had shipped the merchandise about three weeks before to the first venue in Cornerbrook. And I remember that we, we were in Cornerbrook and then that night and the next day was the show. So we were in Cornerbrook for two days and I'll never forget. We're in the restaurant. It was me and Denise, the girl at the time and all the boys and uh, the bill came, and I pulled out a credit card. <laughs> and Tino Santana goes, hey, Mikey, my man, you got it made. You're like the Vince McMahon. You got everything paid. You come down here with your girlfriend. And the boys, you know, got a little bit hot to say, like, who's this young kid? Like, what's he got a company credit card for type of thing? <laughs> but then they all knew, you know, that we worked in the office for Jack, you know. So and we had to keep that quiet about the credit card. The boys, you know. You can only imagine how they'd feel they're on the road paying their own way. And this 17-year-old kid has, you know, hotel rooms and rent the cars and everything paid by the office. Right. So it wasn't bad. And then, like, uh, when they made me a referee later on, I didn't like it because you leave home and you were on your own. You paid, you know, everything yourself. You'd have to room up with somebody and chip in for rental cars. Sometimes you come home with less money than you left with. Yeah, you know, I, I believe it. Now, did he ever did did Tony ever talk about or talk to you about or the the um because most fans, especially in the United States, WWF fans at the time would have only known him as quote unquote the WWF president and the guy who would appear on TV and make some kind of a ruling or whatever about the title. How did, do you know how he felt about that? Like did he was that something that he enjoyed doing? 
I think he never complained about it. I think he enjoyed his role there. The one thing that I I, I can't understand, and it, it's very offensive, going a little bit off topic, is how he's not in the WWE Hall of Fame. I agree. I know I was gone from the company for a number of years, and I know there was a really ugly departure there with Jack and Vince. But, like, you know, for the people they have in there, you know, everybody knew Jack Tunney. Like, it... it, it it actually really, um, I get a warmness when I see him because the odd time you'll see somebody will post something on Facebook. You know, they'll see a picture of Tony W. When you saw him, you knew shit was going down type of thing. And it brings back warm memories, you know, but I've just never understood that. Like, they put so many people into that Hall of Fame. And like, look, let, let's call a spade a spade here. The Hall of Fame is basically a TV show. Right. Okay. And I get it. They honor people and, you know. But it um, means something to the people that go in. I mean, you will talk I, to I guys think so. and to it does mean a lot. Them, yeah. yeah, it you does. Know, but like you have Vern Gagne in there. You have like uh, Abdullah the Butcher in there. You know, there's all his limousine drivers in there. How do you not have one of the most iconic characters of the age? Because he was. Yeah. He was involved in everything. Like the, I remember WrestleMania three, and he was, you know, right in the middle there with Hulk and Andre when they set it down, and Andre grabbed the, you know, the chain, and like Jack was involved, contract signings, everything, and it boggles my mind. Like he's passed away twenty years ago. And it's kind of like, I think it would be good to his, you know, his daughters. He had two daughters, Jane and Jackie. And I think, you know, I haven't spoken to them, but I think it would be really, really good for them and, and his grandkids to see him honored in some kind of way. Like, I, I just find it really, really odd that they've never, they never mention him. And he's never. never been put in the Hall of Fame. It's right. shocking to me. It's no, they shocking. never mention him. They never mention him. And for people, you know, listening, it's important to remember that back then, you know, the average fan, especially young fans and kids and things, we didn't know. They didn't know that Vince McMahon was the boss, that it was the yeah. McMahon family that was running it. I mean, you didn't know. Jack Tunney was the man in charge to the average fan watching the WWF. He was the guy. He was the face of the company. And you're right. It is It is kind of weird that he's not in there. And I know that, well, I mean, for one thing, even the behind the scenes, the interesting thing about him to me is there were so many promoters, you know, territory promoters that either got crushed by the WWF, put out of business, or they made a deal with the WWF, like people like Paul Bosch or Stu Hart or whatever. They would make a deal, and then they would just be cast aside, and and they would just be forgotten about. You know, along with say maybe like Jerry Briscoe. I mean, there were a few people that made a deal and survived and stayed a part mm -hmm. of the company and did business with Vince and were considered valuable to the organization. Jack Tunney was one of those people. Yeah. Well, it's like even Stu Hart was cast aside. Yeah, he went was. In, took it, and, you know, Stu was basically, I'm sure he got a pretty handsome payoff, and, all, you know, his sons and son-in-laws and the Bulldogs and everybody got gigs out of it. But Toronto, I think, Jack had all the TV up here, the Tunnies. And that's what Vince wanted was the TV, the rights to the TV. 
But you're right. Like, I mean, Tony was one guy, and not only did he get a job, but like, I mean, he got a big kayfabe job. He was the right. president of the World Wrestling Federation. Like, that was a big deal to people back then. Like, and it's like you said, everybody believed. Like, I remember you'd go out somewhere with Jack. Everybody knew him. He'd be signing autographs. And Jack was a big, big guy. He wasn't a little guy. Like, Jack was probably 6'4". You know, he was a big, big man. He always dressed in a suit. You know, he had the watch and the big NWA ring on all the time. And it was just like, it, it was, it's just shocking to me the way that it all went down. You know, like he was basically, I think it was the mid to later mid nineties. It was a big falling out there and, and he was gone right. and basically disappeared from pro wrestling completely. Like he passed away and I was in Scotland again. I used to go all the time because I had family there and um, a reporter here, Frank Ziccarelli called me. He had called my house and they gave him the number in Scotland. And then my friend Elio called me and said, Hey, you know, Jack died. And my friend's dad passed away the same day. And it was Really, really like um, just nobody had heard from him in a few years. You know, he just basically, I guess, went off to retirement or whatever he did and got sick. But like not to have any kind of um, recognition. And, you know, the thing, too, is the young kids today, like your boy and all that, you know, they they probably seen him. They wouldn't understand. But like if you were to do something for Jack being in Canada, especially here in Toronto, if they were to do something, the roof would blow off the place. Everybody grew up with Tony in their living room. Right. You know? And, and not only, go ahead. No, I was going to say not only that, but even as a lot of people know, the relationship between the families went back. I mean, Vince's dad and Jack's uncle, Frank Tunney, who were actually close friends and associates. They were among the closest friends, you know, among promoters in the business in those days. I mean, New York and Toronto were like this even back then. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I've heard stuff. I'm not gonna, you know, speak on it because I don't have the um the the knowledge enough to do it. I don't want to get anything wrong, but I just know that there was a big falling out in the end when it when it left. It ended really, really ugly. Yeah. It had a lot to do with uh, Bret Hart. And, you know, who they decided to put in that in the office. But I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. Like, um, it's just, it is what it is. Like, to me, you know, Bret Hart's this iconic figure up here in Canada. And I get it, but people don't know him. And if you don't know him, you know, what, what he appears to be on television and what he is in real life is two different things. So mm -hmm. I, I just leave it at that. I don't have a lot of respect for Bret Hart. And I know I'm probably going to get my ass handed to me after this airs up here. But, you know, people who know me know that. Like right. working, working in the office, it's like promoting. It's like, you know, I myself and my partner got back into it in late 2018. And I said, this is going to be a cakewalk for us. I said, you know, coming from the WWF to the Indies, man, was I wrong. It, it's, it's a completely different animal, the Indies. It's like everybody's, you know, scraping and scrimping. You're going to do, I got to do this and I got to do that. See, I'm the kind of promoter that I'm not into, you know, oh, I got to get my shit in. I got to get my shit in. I like to book people that have a certain look, you know, I don't know how it is. I'm assuming it's the same where you are out in Connecticut, New Jersey, New York area, but everybody here seems to live in a little bubble in the Indies, you know, Oh, I was trained here and I'm going to do it. Well, you know, like if I look at some of these guys, I see these posters they put out for local shows and these guys look like, 
they should be changing your oil in a gas station. I know. There's there's nothing pro wrestling about them, you know, and I try to book people like you always have to throw because you'll always be short a guy or a girl and you got to throw somebody on the show. But I try not to just fill the show. Oh, well, I need a body. Okay, well, let's figure it out with the people I got. It's kind of like I know we went way off topic here, but it's something that I feel strongly about. It's like these people go out and get trained by guys who have done absolutely nothing in the business other than being workers. They look like bags of milk. So if you go, if you, if you go to a a, a training center and your trainer looks like a bag of milk, never been to a gym, doesn't tan. Well, what incentive do you have to do that? If they haven't worked on any kind of level in this business, it's like, I got a lot of heat a few years ago, you know, and I said, I don't understand what this is all about. And then I realized it because I think they know that I, myself and my partner know what we're talking about. And, you know, I get people reach out to me all the time because I do um, a lot of fair shows in the August and September. And I get all kinds of people reaching out to me. Oh, that Mike Clark, he's a prick. He won't use me because you're not good. You don't look good enough. Right. I'm not into that. I'm into the, like the wrestling. The wrestling business hasn't changed, Brian. It's been the same since the 20s. It's about entertaining people, suspending their disbelief for that time. I'm not into all the comedy stuff. I'm not into, you know, well, I got to do this and I got to go out, have a decent match. And we did a show last year. There's a guy here, Rob Rage, and I use him. He's either a heel or a baby face, big, big guy, you know, like a great big Jack guy. And I put him in the ring with the guy who was a champion on that show. And they did like a Flair Hogan type match. The crowd went crazy. That's what people want to see. And it's like these, these kids up here, they just don't get it. Like no. you can't give them any criticism. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah. What, what are you wearing exactly? Everyone's in black tights. Everybody, you know, they, and they, they take their shirt off. They don't shave their chest hair. They don't have a tan. They have no build. I said, I can't use you. I'm sorry. You know, then you don't look, you know, if you're going to a wrestling event, you want to see wrestlers, right? You don't want to just see a guy that looks like he could be working in the car wash. You know, that's just my theory on it, but there's gotta be standards. There has to be standards. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes gives the Indies a bad name with some people is you feel like there's no quality control. There's no standards. Anybody could work. Anybody could get a job. Just book your friends. That's right. There's promotions up here that have been running for 10 years. And I call it, people get mad, but I say, you know, they cater to the chairs because you look at the picture and all you see is chairs. You know, like I'm involved with a company here, Demand Lucha. I'm involved with them a little bit. And we had a show last Thursday and it was completely packed the place. And it was Sam Adonis, who you know from uh, CSC was on it. Joey Janela, Gringo Locos, the champion, Jack Evans. And everybody was in They said, man, look at this place. Because it's booked properly. You want to book people who not only have like an indie buzz, but can do it and can, you know, look the part, you know, there's no point having wrestling shows like, Oh, this Sunday, you know, $10 wrestling. Well, what's $10 wrestling. How can you go out for live entertainment at $10 a ticket and expect to be entertained? Right. And I mean, indie buzz is one thing. Here's the thing. And as you know, like indies used to be run a lot differently. Like it's one thing to have guys that have a buzz and you'll bring a lot of, 
internet fans and people that are like these kind of like on, you know, hardcore indie wrestling fans. But if you want to appeal to a broader base, if you want to get more than 70 or 80 people to come to your show or whatever it is, like 70 or 80 is huge. That would be huge. Right. But if you want to actually bring in, bring in the average person and, and casual fans or families or whatever, you need to have people that look the part and that know how to work. You can't just have oh I oh, oh this guy is hot on the indies. You're just going to have your core of people that will show up no matter what you do, and you can't grow yeah. your business that way. Well, this is this this is a thing too. Like with with demand, like me, I do bot shows at fairs. So like you know, I can basically put on whatever I want, but I don't do that. Like there's other people that get bot shows and they just hot shot the town. Like for instance. Somebody down in Connecticut, oh, I got a bot show at the Hartford Fair. They're paying me X amount of dollars. Okay, well, let me book all the garbage that I can and make as much money as I can. I don't do it like that. I have a budget. I budget the show. It's not about getting rich. It's about getting those people back year after year after year. And like Classic Championship Wrestling, the company that myself and uh, my partner, Elio, got in the late 2018 they had that relationship for 10 years with the fair boards they were the company that they go to and they've been doing the same we're still doing the same fairs that the former owner did 12 years ago we get them every year you know and it's just like you have to put on quality like even down in the states like you you'll see there's companies here that try they book you know guys from impact guys from AEW, you know a few nxt guys and stuff but they put them in with local talent where you know there is no way that this guy has any chance of beating the guy it's like you said indie buzz is one thing like gringo loco is um champion at the man lucha and the last they run every two months and in um december show at the end he won and he called out joey janela who's also a huge guy in the internet he's got a huge following on twitter so people are interested in that match you know because they have a huge following they went in and they tore the house down going through tables and all of that stuff and we have like um Jody Threat, who's a huge um, female on the indies up here. She goes down, you know, all over the place. How she isn't signed is beyond me, but, you know, to each his own. And then we had Jimmy Lloyd come up, the One Manders, uh, Marcus Mathers, a lot of GCW guys. And Sam, who I met a few years ago at CAC, he's just in Pittsburgh and he's on all the shows now, too. And loving it. I mean, and it runs on a Thursday night. You know, the, the 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 guys who ran the who run the man Lucha, I told them, I said, why don't you run on a Thursday? Well, you know, you got to run on a weekend. I said, no. I go, if you're giving the people something they want to see, they'll go. Whether it's a Tuesday, like WWF used to run Monday to Sunday. There was never a day off. Multiple shows. You know, you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, two Saturday, two Sunday. And it was at one time, three squats. They'd be running three shows every day, six on Saturday, six on Sunday. And people don't understand that. Like they would do, you'd have one crew out in, 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 you know, the West Coast doing California. They do Oakland at one, Sacramento at seven. You know, you'd be up here, you do say Maple Leaf Gardens at one, Kitchener at seven. You know, and then you'd have another crew 
crew down there. They do, you know, Newark at one and, you know, whatever, Brooklyn at seven, you know, for the right. And it was just, people don't understand the way, you know, the business works like that. And WWF, like that machine, it was insane. Like even the wrestlers now that are there, I don't watch a lot of wrestling, to be honest with you. I watched this last Elimination Chamber because I wanted to see the reaction in Montreal to Sammy's name because that was the first out-of-province show I ever went to was in the forum. It was Hulk Hogan versus uh, Magnificent Morocco. Wow. I think it was 80. Ilio took me in like 86, and he said, you wait. And they, that's when they played Hulk Hogan, the, the original one with that, you know, the uh, the wailing in the background, the I am a real. And they hit that music, and I thought the roof was going to blow up. They're the most rabid fans in the world in Montreal. Like, I went there to see George St. Pierre 10 years ago, and at the UFC, they give you a little earpiece so you can hear the announcing. If you took that out, you couldn't even hear Bruce Buffer. All you saw him was throwing the cards in the air. It's insane in Montreal. Right. And that was crazy, too, the show they just did. I mean, that was that was the hottest crowd I've seen for WWE in a very long time. I mean, that was... Uh, I, think, I think they dropped the ball on that one, to be well, honest. I think they should have given Sammy the belt there. That's, I mean, I understand there. I don't, I don't agree, but I mean, there are a lot of people who feel that way, but even just the, the crowd itself, the heat and the way that they believed in him and the emotion on that match. I mean, you Mm -hmm. do not see that very often anymore. And that would, that was something special. And maybe there is something to the, to the idea that they should have put the belt on him. But while you look at that match at the end, when he lost, you could hear a pin drop in there. True. That was the payoff. You know, like, I get it. They want to, you know, they've been gearing up for Cody Rhodes, Cody Rhodes. And nobody, I think in the beginning, they did it as a lark. Let's throw Sammy in there, you know, for a bit of comic relief. He was never expecting it. Never, ever expecting it to be. You know, to be the you know the big crescendo in the Montreal Forum, but I don't know. I think they dropped the ball on that. I think they could have had Sammy go to Mania and Cody chase after Mania. That's what I think they should have done a quick audible on that. But that's just my opinion. I mean, I don't know. I don't think Cody means as much anymore. Well, I guess time will tell on that. I know they have really, really huge plans for him and they want him to be the guy. And, that, you know, so, I mean, I, I get they're trying to protect him. And honestly, he's been doing a lot better than he did in AEW. I was at the I was at the uh, show in Queens that they did at the tennis stadium there, Arthur Ashe and the first one in 2021. And that was the first time, really, because those New York fans could be brutal, as you know. I mean, they're like Philly fans. They could turn on you on a dime. Oh, in the hockey, they're brutal up here. When the Leafs play down there, they're just brutal, yeah. But that was the first time, really, that Cody got booed, seriously booed by the AEW fans. And I remember being really confused. Like, well, I don't understand. Like, did I miss something? Like, why do they hate this guy? And then what happens is, those new those New York crowds, those Philly crowds, people watch the show on TV in the other markets, and then it catches on. And then when you go to the next town, then they start booing you there. Like yeah. the same thing, the same thing happened to Shawn Michaels. I was at the 96 Survivor series in the Madison Square Garden, and it was Shawn defending against Sid. Shawn was the baby face, Sid was the heel. And the crowd just ate up Sid and they hated Shawn, and he was getting pissed off. And that mm-hmm. wound up leading eventually to them turning Sean because yeah. people just turned on him, you know? 
It happens. Well, speaking of AEW, I, I, I don't know how this company is. Um, it, it, I can't even watch AEW. It's that bad. I they find it. You know what? I get it. They have a little bit of um, a little bit of a market, but yes, you know, like you look at their product. They came out with all of this buzz that we're going to be the next one, and we're going to be doing this and that. They haven't grown at all. Like even when Punk came out, they hit I think a million four, a million five. They can't keep their audience. The show has no flow to it. It's so like you look at these young bucks. I've never seen like they come out and on the jumbotron behind them it says killing the business. It says that when they come out, they shit all over the business. They're two young guys who should never be in the position they're in, but they're there and they're going to take advantage of it and do their thing. They have so much talent at AEW and nobody running the ship there. It's kind of like with the money Tony Khan has. I thought when, when William Regal went there, I figured, you know, Tony Khan would sit down and say, Hey, you know what? We want you on here, but we want you behind the scenes. Help me book this thing. Because I think a guy like William Regal with his knowledge could have really done something. But the problem is these guys all have these EVP roles and they all have this. It's all about, well, I'm not losing. And I'm and the company, to, to be honest, like I listen to, I'm, I religiously listen to Cornette. Yeah, a lot of people don't like Cornette, but I listen to him, and he's he's right ninety percent of the time about what he says. He's yeah, not out no, of touch. No, he is. He really is. Cornette and and I know he, business, he rubs, Cornette he, looks at the business the way it's supposed to be looked at. It's like right. I said earlier, the business hasn't changed since the twenties. It's about getting people interested in your product to buy a ticket to go and see it, suspend their disbelief. Everybody knows, okay, that. It's a predetermined outcome. Everybody's well aware of that. But I want to go to an event and watch it. And while I watch it, even I'm involved in the business. Like, I'll never forget. I brought this up the other day. I just had Jimmy Hart here for the weekend. And we were talking about it. And I said, I remember The Miz wrestled Jerry the King Lawler. I don't know when it was. 10 or 12 years ago on Raw. Yeah. In a ladder match for the title. And I was sitting in my condo. I had a condominium at the time. I was on the edge of my seat thinking Lawler was going to win this belt. It was that good. You know, you got an old school guy like Lawler that can get the crowd in the palm of his hand. You don't have that anymore, especially in AEW. Like the stuff they do makes no sense. Every match has 15 finishers. You know, like there's blood. Like there's no need for that. Right. You My know? problem with them is they, you know, like you said, they have a lot of promise and they have a lot of talent. They still do, but yeah. they have lost so much momentum in the past year. And look, you know, when you criticize them and when you say things, people think you want them to fail or you're rooting for WWE. It's not true at all. You know, I think a lot of people want there to be a, a good, solid alternative, another yeah. company. And a lot of people are disappointed when AEW kind of falls short of that, because they have been losing a lot of ground and something's got to change. Like you were saying, you got veterans there that nobody wants to listen to. People have said it, people like Regal, you've had people like Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, people that want to work, or Jake the Snake, they want to work with the younger people, but there's this attitude, and you've said it, and you've run into it on the indies of, 
I, you can't teach me anything. I have nothing to learn. Yeah. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it, which that is a big change in the business. I've talked to other people on here about that, how the young guys always used to make sure that they listened to the veterans and that's how the business went on. And that's like dying out. Well, it's like with me too. Like I'll pull, there's a few kids that listen, but I get it a lot. They go, well, what did you do? I said, I worked in the front office for WWE. Yeah, but you were never a worker. I said, what does that mean? You know, neither, neither was Jack Tunney. Neither was yeah, Jack well, Tunney, right? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying everybody, right. but the majority, not the, the majority of these kids, young adults and adults, they know everything. You were never a wrestler, so you don't know. Like there's promotions here. The, oh, yeah, this guy, he, he's a wrestler. He, he's you know, going to open a promotion. He knows the business. I said, no, he doesn't. The workers do not know the business. They know how to work. They don't know the first thing about running a show. See, I do things the way, this is just the way that I feel. I'm sure you've heard it. In the Indies, you hear it all the time. We went to work for that guy. We didn't get paid. Oh, you know, we went here and the guy ripped me off or whatever. The way that I run my business is that I look in life in general with everything. What's the worst that can happen? What is the worst that can happen? I got two shows in a city called Dryden, Ontario, three years ago. And it's 1,780 kilometers, which is about 1,100 miles from Toronto, north in the province. And they bought the show. Uh, I didn't give the, I didn't charge them enough trans. So I said, you know what? I'm going to run three shows on the way up. So I ran like five hours from here. The next day, an additional four hours and two hours, you know, on the way up. And they were ticketed shows. And I don't like doing ticketed shows. But I said, what's the worst that could happen? So I got to pay the guys. So I know what the budget is for the guys. I know what the arena is. I know what the hotels and that are going to cost me. Am I willing to lose that? You know, am I willing to risk it? Because the last thing I ever want to do is not pay anybody. Because I think that is absolutely diabolical that somebody comes in, even though you hear, oh, it's wrestling. It's not the point. If I tell you, right. Brian, hey, I got a showdown here. You know, I'll pay you $75. And you say, yeah, and you show up and I only give you 30 well, no, the agree, you know, and, and this is what a lot of people it's fundamentally wrong. And I can't believe like there was a big gong show down there in uh, New Jersey. Some kid ran and didn't pay anybody. I saw it when I was in Cuba on YouTube. Yes. yes. And he, he didn't pay anybody. And, you know, they were going to kill it. He called the cops and all of this. Like, I don't like with, with, with legends, WWE guys, I know most of them. So, like, they don't, if somebody asks me for a deposit, I don't give them a deposit. I tell them, look, I'll book your airline ticket. I'll meet you at the airport. I'll pay all your money the second you get off the plane. And that's what I do. Get off, I shake their hand, I hand them their envelope, and everything's, you know, good. And, and this is a major, major problem. And the kids tolerate it. And they go back and work for that promoter again. Because, again, well, we got to get experience. No, you have to be paid. You have to, you can't back out on your promise. You know, if you're going to get paid X amount of dollars, that's what you're going to get. And two, with the indies here, you'll get certain people who have been around 15 20 years and they think they're worth more than they are you know well the, my, the term i hate the most being a promoter is when i call somebody contacts me i'll give you an example i was doing a bunch of shows last september and this kid contacted me he says hey 
you know, I was wondering, I mean, I'm in town. I'd be able to do those three shows. Let me know. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll put you on them. And he go, my rate is X. And I just say, and I don't even respond. Don't tell me what you're worth. You know what I mean? I give yeah. you a price. You either take it or leave it. It's not like you come for a job interview. Well, you know, I need 150000 a year. It doesn't work like that. Right. Like these indie people, my rate, my, well, I got 20 years in the business, but you're not adding anything to my show. I have a bot show. I could put you on it. I could put your son on it. What's the difference? Right. You That's know? important to remember about, you know, people that do have a rate, as you say, like you may have a number in your head of what you consider your worth to be and what you're going to take or not take. But that doesn't mean that you can dictate it. What it means is, let's say, you know, you come at me with a price you're willing to pay me. Now I have a rate in my head of what I want to get. And then, like you said, I have the option to say yes or no. If it doesn't meet what I think is my rate, I'll just say no. And if it does meet it, I'll say yes. But it doesn't mean that you can dictate that to the promoter. I get what you're saying. But it's amazing. You know, like you get these kids and they got two and three years doing indies. You know, they've done 50 shows. (laughs) You know, hey, I got a show, uh, you know, February 27th. Oh, yeah. Okay. I could do it. My rate's 125. And I I don't even bother responding. I just say, forget it. You're you're way out of the ballpark here. You know, they have to understand that this is pro wrestling. Like the best thing in my life, believe it or not, and I know this, the wrestling podcast was leaving the business at the end of 91. I, I left the WWF under, you know, there was some big controversy why I left and, uh, but we can't talk about that, but, uh, and I never ever thought I'd be back in wrestling. And then five years I toiled around working here, working there, did not doing much. And then I got in with the Toronto transit commission in 96 and I've been there 27 years and I've got three years to retire and make good money. I got a full pension. And, you know, I try to tell the young people don't rely on wrestling, have wrestling is a hobby you know you you can't throw all your eggs in one basket if you're going to do that you have to give yourself a time frame all right i've been on the indies i started at 17 by the time i'm 21 i want to really get out there you know you can give yourself a, a, a seven eight year plan but like once you hit 30 years old in my opinion and i mean that doesn't mean anything it's just my once you hit 30 years old and you're not signed you're really the chance of you getting signed is virtually nil and you know nil and void at that point. I mean, other than Batista, I don't know anybody. I mean, I'm probably wrong, but other than Batista, there's nobody that got into the business in their 30s. Yeah, he was a rarity. And then there, there I mean, I knew guys like I remember another example, but he 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 wasn't a main eventer, but it comes to mind was Rico Constantino. He was another yeah. one who we always used to because he was there when I was there, and we would always talk about, "Wow, I can't believe it! How old are you? You're in your 40s?" And but you know, he, he, do, he did American Gladiators, right? Isn't he the guy? Yeah, wow. They got him because you know he was the champion on American Gladiators right. or something. But there, it's very rare. And like you know, going back to the training thing, I'm going off topic again. No, but I was talking to a friend of mine about WWE and how they're signing college athletes now. You know, for their developmental, they're they're going away from the indie workers. And you know what? People might get mad, but I I think that's the way they have to go. Because unless you're a stellar independent wrestler, 
And like we said earlier, the majority of them don't listen to anybody. And you've got your bad habits, and it's very hard for WWE to change those habits. Like, look at Bianca Belair and her husband there, Montez Ford. They were both college athletes. And I mean, the sky's the limit. Bianca Belair is, in my opinion, far and away the best female wrestler in the world right now. She has the look. She has the the perfect side, perfect look. She's an athlete. The fans love her. Like, she's phenomenal. And she was a track athlete. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can train. Like, I remember years ago in Scotland again, there was a show called Faking It. And that's the first time I saw Gordon Ramsay, actually. It was about 20 years ago. And they did a show where they did one on pro wrestling and it was a Knight family. I didn't know them then, uh, Soraya's parent. Oh yeah. And they went and they picked, they, they, they said, we're going to pick a guy. They're going to have a wrestling match. They had to pick who the fake, who wasn't the wrestler. And they picked a ballerina, a male guy that did ballet. And nobody picked that. He wasn't the wrestler. They trained him for 30 days and he went in the ring and they said, there's no way this guy isn't a wrestler. You know, so it shows you, I mean, you can, you can trace like where I worked. They try not to hire people who are truck drivers or bus drivers because you might have bad habits and it's very hard to change it. So I'll hire Brian, who's never driven a bus before, train him our way. If he passes, then he's going to do it the way we tell him to do it. Right. You know, right. I, like, I like the WWE product right now. I think. Uh, to be honest, and I don't watch a lot of it, but um, I, I, I think that they're just, they, it seems like I have a feeling wrestling is going to be on a big, big boom again. Because, like, we ran the show here Thursday night, it was packed. And Calgary, I think it's Bret Hart's two boys have a promotion, and they had yes. seven or 800 people. So, I mean, the business is definitely coming back. If you give the people something they want to see, you know, I, I, I think that the business is going to go on its upswing now because it's always been secular. It's hot for three or four years. And right. Dies. So I just think this last, you know, five to 10 years, it's really been on the downswing. But I think they're going to with Roman and, you know, Sammy and Cody and all these guys. I think they're really, really going to go on an upswing. And going back to that AEW, if you go over their numbers, like I, I went over SmackDown's rating, it starts at one number and it peaks at the main event, whereas AEW starts at a peak and dies off. Every week, it's the same thing. And that's yeah. not good. They don't, you know, and I heard Cornette talk about it with Brian Last a number of times where he says, you know, like when Cornette was on the booking committee at WWE, it's, he goes, Steve Austin was hurt for eight weeks no one knew he was hurt because they would do vignettes and show austin's gonna say something at the top of the hour you know and they, they right. keep the audience there AEW doesn't do that like you'll have a guy come out like this um <laughs> i know the, yeah, the I know new japan mean. guy what's his name white jake white jay white Jay White. I yeah. remember four or five months ago, I'm watching AEW. There's something going on in the back. I think it was with the, the Bucks, the trampoline cowboys. <laughs> and uh, this guy's standing with his back to the screen in a black leather jacket. He turns and the announcer goes, It's Jay White. Like, 
I don't even never even heard of this guy. Like there's no buildup. Where WWE years ago, they always did vignettes with people. Let us introduce you to Gun Brothers, you know, Double J, Kamala, everybody. You have to have some kind of build. Like I saw that they did something a month ago with with Will Hobbs in a gym, and that's just stopped. They were doing vignettes with Will Hobbs, and for no rhyme or reason, you don't see the vignettes anymore. Or they'll bring them out this week, and like you're supposed to remember the vignette from a month ago. I don't right. know. The continuity isn't there. And the problem, a lot of what you see with AEW, and I think a lot of people feel this way, is it's like an indie with a very big budget. It's like yeah. the same mentality of how a lot of indies are run and booked, but they just have a lot of money to throw at it. Like there's no, yeah. there's no sense of continuity. Like something happens and then it's forgotten about. You know, there's no you, you don't know who's with who and the very haphazard the shows thrown together, which is a shame because I have to say a lot of their, you know, they only do four pay-per-views a year. And usually their pay-per-views are fantastic because they got a lot of great workers and the matches a lot of times I can't watch. I can't watch Bucks matches. I can't deal with yeah, the. I mean, either I. They make me I can't deal with watching. the tag team. The tag team matches in that company are a bit of a mess. There's no rhyme or reason the referee is just standing there but a lot of their big money matches the main events and the bit that you know they actually are really really good but the problem is they can't string it together they don't know they, they seem to have trouble building it's, things. It's, it's like mjf there was nobody higher on that guy than me a couple of years ago and now it's just the same mundane thing over and over shit on the town shit on the people i yeah. like mjf but like I don't think he would work in in WWE. He wouldn't be allowed the freedom that he has. You know what I mean? Like to me, and and people are probably going to get it. It's like The Rock. The Rock had everything written for him. And a lot of the stuff was extremely sexually charged that he did. Okay. And I get it. He's a very charismatic guy. Okay, but I don't compare The Rock to guys like Dusty Rhodes or Ric Flair for promos because that was all off the top of their head. No, that's true. I mean, that's a big, that's a very different skill. The Rock was great, but he was great at catchphrases. He was great at at remembering a script, whereas the guys you mentioned, I mean, they could just go off and talk. And you know what I mean? Like you see MJF and it's, I saw a clip when they weren't on air and he comes out and he's F-bombing everybody. I don't have any respect. Like, the, the, you know, you can't be doing that. There's children in the crowd. And I know there's people that are going to say, well, it's 2023. No, I agree. I agree. I don't want You're to right about my that. child to, you know, at an event and people are swearing and screaming and I don't know. You know what? AEW has its niece. Like, I really like those uh, Mexican guys, Penta and, and, and Phoenix. Oh, yeah. I think they're nuts, you know? Yeah, and even the Pack guy. Like, I enjoy watching their stuff. I mean, I get it. It's their, their spot monkeys, but they put a lot, like, they just go right at it. Like, they're just putting balls to the wall and going, but... I don't know. It's just not something that I can watch. Like AEW, I watch it, to be honest with you. I watch it to hear what Cornette's going to say about it. And I'll call <laughs> a friend of mine and say, oh, Cornette's going to pan this. I know. Like last week, there was a match, a tag match. It was Moxley and someone versus two other guys. And Moxley and the one guy were working each other. They both were bleeding. And they were lying in the ring, staring at the action going on for like three minutes. 
just right. staring at it. And I said, what are they doing? Like, I, I, I don't understand it. Like, I don't see the need in getting blood all the time in the matches. It's got to mean something. If you're going to do blood, it's got to mean something. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like you said, sometimes I wonder if, uh, and I know, you know, Brian Last will, 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 will definitely say absolutely not, but sometimes it makes you think that uh, AEW and has Cornette on the payroll because it's almost too, it's almost too perfect how, like, you know, well, like you, I, I think it, it gets more people watching the show, like like you, to say, yeah. oh, my God, what are they going to do now? You well, know, like if hilarious. you remember two or three weeks ago, Brian last said, you know, they had a rough bump. When's the last time? And now that's all they're doing. They mentioned it on Corda, and now the oh, last yes. show they had two rough bumps. I, I do think know? I do think that Tony Khan is a listener to Cornette's show. I think he's a fan. I think no matter what Jim says on the show to kind of knock his company and his product and even him, I think part of Tony eats it up. As a fan, I think he gets a kick out of it, and I think he responds Look, to it. And even, even Cornette... <laughs> I don't actually think he wants them to fail. I think Cornette. No, I don't think anyone does. No one it. does. Cornette would have loved it if yeah. you know these guys could be competitors because that's what we all want. At the end of the day, anybody involved in the wrestling, like I hate the term mark, and these indie workers throw the term around. I said, you guys are the marks. You're the ones driving four and a half hours for a fifty dollar payday. We're all marks. We're all wrestling fans. You know, like WWE, you're not allowed to use that term. I never heard the term in the WWF, Mark. You weren't allowed. But it's like Cornette, I think, wants it to succeed, but it's at the point where it's just so bad. You know, Tony Khan needs to bring people in like myself. Wink, wink. No, <laughs> you know, get people in there that, you know, have experience in the front office in this business. Like, I mean, he's running the Jacksonville Jaguars. They so have the team in England. I don't know how involved in all of that he is, but I mean, I, I don't think this guy sleeps. No. He's putting together four, three or four hours of television a week and pay-per-views and dealing with all these guys. So I don't know, like, to be honest, I've said it. To quite a few people, I can see Tony Khan at some point just throwing the towel in on this thing. He I has mean, enough it, money yeah. to do it, and it's like he's a super fan that has billions of dollars. Like, what does he care at the end of the day? You know, he could just wake up one day and say, I'm done with this. I, I played, you know, I had my my fun and I'm done. Like they're going on and on about AEW getting a hundred and fifty million dollar TV contract. It's never gonna happen. The rating doesn't doesn't, you know, show that why would they get any more money than they're getting now? Right. The one saving grace for them for the time being is that as as weak as their numbers are, wrestling still does better numbers than a lot of what else is on TV, especially on cable. But you're right. I mean, the second it gets so bad that that TBS, TNT, you know, and the the that organization uh, looks at it and says, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery and says, you know, we could put something else on in this time slot and do a better number. The second they think that they're going to cancel their shows. And I hope it doesn't get to that point, but it absolutely could get to that point. Yeah. Um but so I so I want to <laughs> we're turning into the Cornette show here, right? I usually don't talk so much about the current product, uh, but for you know we've been talking about some of the work that you've done and the promoting that you do for people that do want to follow you and and who are interested to learn about what you're doing. Is there a website? Is there social media for the stuff that you do that people can look for? 
I'm not a huge social media guy, but you can look up Classic Championship Wrestling on uh, Facebook, our website, ccw.ca, and um, just look for us at your local. And um, there's also Demand Lucha, which I'm involved with, with uh, promoter Jordan Marquez and uh, Rob Fuego. Uh, we all work together on that. It's not mine, but we all work together. We have a great kinship. And um, yeah, so you can follow Demand Lucha on Instagram, Classic Championship Wrestling on Instagram, Demand Lucha on uh, Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. I have too much going on. I get a uh, hundred phone calls a day and everything else. And it's just like the less social media I have, probably the better. Right. No, I hear what you're saying too. It's like a necessary evil for me, but I try to, you know, use it as only as much as I need to use it. Like people yeah. will sometimes, like if I'm out of touch on something or clueless or I chime in and I don't really know what's happening, people will say to me, well, aren't you on the internet? Aren't you on social media? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, as little as possible. I, mean, I am on it. <laughs> a funny story from last week. I talked to um, Jordan about the Lucha show, and he said, um, can you grab um, Arrow Boy and Jack Evans at the airport? I said, well, I can't, but I can get someone to do it. And he sent me Arrow Boy's number, Mexican number. I go, you don't have Jack Evans? He goes, no, Jack Evans doesn't have a phone. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> He only corresponds because he doesn't want a phone. He said he right. only corresponds by email. I said, okay, cool. You know, he gets a hold of everyone on Twitter and all that, where I prefer somebody calling me. Like, I'll get a hold of someone. Yeah, I find too. a lot's lost in translation on Messenger and stuff like that. You know, I'm sure it's happened to you. What What did you mean by that, Brian? Right. Well, if you called me, you would understand what I'm, you know, people read text messages differently. So right. I prefer people, I prefer the old school pick up the phone. Phone and yeah, you're booked for this show. Okay, great. I try to text and call everybody. I try not to do the internet thing. Yeah, I'm the same way. And you know, even with this show, I try to. A lot of the people that that I get on are are, are because they're older people because it's an old school wrestling podcast, and it's we talk about old school wrestling. You know, a lot of times there are people that feel the same way about all that stuff as I do, which is mm -hmm. that it's part of our lives now, but it doesn't have to rule our lives so anyway uh, i just wanted to to kind of um give people a chance who who may be interested to learn more about what you do so thanks for doing that and thanks for coming Thank on and talking about all these great stories i mean we could go forever because there are some things you said that i would love to delve even more into so <laughs> whether 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 we we'll whether do, we can or not right but but yeah we'll, we'll do, do it another w, time the wwf stories about uh certain bar incidents and stuff <laughs> like that you right. Know, with my good buddy Barbarian and Haku and everybody. I, I saw Haku there two years ago. I hadn't seen him in I don't know, 25 years. And it was like it was like being in high school with him. He he's a legend, Tonga. Nicest man you'd ever meet. You know, yeah. and I'll tell you, going just one more thing. Everybody talks about these these famous Haku stories, the bar fights, and they say, you know, why would you want to pick on them? I'll tell you why. Because have you ever been in a bar with Haku? He's got a crowd around him. He's the most popular guy because he tells a story and that big laugh that he's got. And people are envious and jealous of people like that. And, he, you know, what's he got that I don't? That's how I think it is. Because he's the last guy that ever wants to start any trouble. You know, wonderful, wonderful guy. Honored yeah. to have him as a friend. Yeah, and I mean, I, I met him on that same um, CAC 
weekend a couple of years ago. I remember when you guys were catching up at the TGIF uh, in, yeah, in, yeah. in the casino there. He is a great it guy. It was fantastic. My buddy Runyon, uh, Mr. Marvelous, that was with me. He was mesmerized. He said, all he did was put you over for two. I go, man, we've got hundreds of stories. I said, hey, you could be here for a week, like you said. You know, it was funny. Oh, he said, yeah. oh, he was 16 running into the bar. You can do that in Canada. I go, well, no, you can't do that. But, you know. <laughs> right. Well, no, yeah, there, there's definitely more than enough material ammunition for a part two we're gonna have to do this again for All sure right. for absolutely sure. forward to it but thank you so much mike this has been really really terrific thank you thank you brian have a great day thanks everybody there you have it folks my conversation with mike clark mike thank you for coming on the show and being a part of shut up and wrestle and thank you guys for listening and do keep listening, because next week on the show, for episode number 64, this is one I've been talking about. We are going to have Mary Freeze, the daughter of Pampero Furpo. That's right. She will be on the show. Who still remembers Pampero Furpo? Well, certainly his daughter does. And we are going to be talking to her about him and being the, the child of a bona fide pro wrestling legend on next week's show. Other future guests on Shut Up and Wrestle that we currently have booked include Bob Smith of London Publishing and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, as well as Gennard Soli, the son of Gordon Soli. That was a fun one. Can't wait to share it with you. I got a few more lined up. I don't want to say anything yet until I know that it's for certain. But one thing that is for certain is that you need to keep on listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because we always have great guests and great conversations. While you're at it, you can also join our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. On Facebook, we share a lot of great content, usually, but not always, but usually related to the show and the, ep and the people that are on it, the guests and the episodes. So give it a shot. Join the club. It's a lot of fun. Also, if you are so inclined, take a listen to some other things that I work on and other projects that I do. I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Of course, you can get copies of that at pwi-online.com, print and digital form. And the other magazine I write for, Inside the Ropes, you can find at insidetheropesmagazine.com in digital or print form. There's also the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard. I am the news director, and it is a product that I am very proud of, and I encourage you to listen every morning. It's a good 5, 10, 15 minutes. It'll keep you up to date on what's happening in the world of wrestling. You can find it. You can subscribe at thewrestlingnews.com or wherever you get podcasts. Additionally, you can also find this podcast. I guess I might as well mention it as well. You can find Shut Up and Wrestle at suawpod.com. You can also find it at Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the whole nine yards, wherever you get your podcasts. The same goes for the PWI podcast, which I co-host with Al Castle. You will find it in all those same places. If you're interested in picking up a copy of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, written by yours truly, you can find it on in digital form, in print form, and in audio form, read also by yours truly. Find it on Amazon. Find it at Barnes & Noble. If it's not at your bookstore, tell them to order it. Check it out. It's still out there, and it's still available. If you're looking for me on social media, 
I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. On Facebook, you can find my author page at Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. A kiss can be deadly if you mean it. So long, wrestling fans.